City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, and uh, it's 9 o'clock, or I just ticked over to 9.01 in the studio, and I can't believe it, we're actually on air with City Limits. It's uh, <laughs> unbelievable. Karina's over there, I'm Kevin Healy. Karina, uh, what do you think? We're kicking off. I was, I was waiting for the... the hilarious comment about me being on time for once. Well, yes, I thought I saw it. I got here, I was making the tea, and I thought I saw an optical illusion <laughs> in, the, in the backyard. I thought that looked like Karina, but it couldn't be. It's before nine o'clock, but there she was. We do have a Chockers housing week because, of course, it's the third Wednesday of the month, the so Wednesday. I thought I'd be in on time. Very good of you, and um, <laughs> <laughs> lovely to see you. And um, We're going to have Shane McGrath, of course, our regular from the Housing with Age Action Group, and we've also got um, two public housing advocates and tenants in Catherine Murdoch and uh, and um, Jack Burton. And um, they'll be on the program a little later. And there's plenty to talk about with housing because uh, I think it's it's one of the big items in the news, of course. And Claudia's just turned up in the studio as well, Claudia, after a, an exhausting brekkie show. So, there she is. But I, wanted, I thought it worth mentioning that because uh, you've, got, you've got something on a cup of tea. Oh, yeah, you do. Very good, very good, very good. Claudia brought her own mug for listeners. Right. Um, and there's milk in it as well. That could be interesting with Asian tea, but anyway, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, Karina, here you are. Well, Cup of tea. We've done the tea. That's been very good. Um, this morning, uh, you um, talked, you spoke to a, you interviewed a bloke from the um, Australia Institute on the um, Brecky Show. And uh, he talked about the report into poverty in Australia and how, how in fact, inequalities are, are growing, which we all know. Uh, and yet in the last day or so, we've seen a report go to the government, uh, and it's pretty similar to the one that you were talking about this morning, from a government-appointed body, which was, in fact, led by independents who asked for it to be held, uh, recommending huge increases in the dole, which are certainly not overdue, and... Uh, We've also had single mums complaining about the fact that they've been forced on the dole for years, but the government is talking about rejecting it already, so it's uh, pretty dire. I thought worth mentioning, though, because chairing that committee and posing as a great lefty now and telling us how, as she did before she got into Parliament as well, uh, is Jenny Macklin, who was the member for Jika Jika, I think it was, all those years, and she was minister. But having now reigned this recommendation, she was, in fact, the minister, of course, who who took the um, single mum's benefit away from single mums and put them back on the dole when she was minister. Uh, so uh, she's got a lot to answer for. And the Labor Party also, before it got into government, had condemned loudly Howard's uh, intervention in Indigenous uh, communities. But once she became the minister, she also uh, absolutely went head over heels in support of the whole thing. So um, she's a bit to answer for, Jenny Macklin, but at least she's come out with this one now, I suppose. But unfortunately, the government looks like it's going to reject the whole thing, which is uh, not good, not good. Not at all. Uh, no, no. But, uh, I mean, that, that report just... If it, there was one point I thought where you, where you said to him, well, 
uh, what what else can we do to uh, make things more equal? And I thought the obvious answer was get rid of capitalism, but <laughs> it didn't. Just pull it, the lens right out. <laughs> it didn't quite come. I'm going to have a sip of tea. Hang on, to you. Should have done a joint yeah. interview. Yeah, <laughs> yeah or given the answer or something. Yeah, um, but then I thought to myself, now look, I've been. Pr- for probably decades and decades and decades, trying to work out how to get rid of capitalism, we still haven't got there. So we can't. Uh, we, we, it's not, not a simple solution, unfortunately. Uh, we're finding, by the way, with the state government, and it's interesting because uh, next week we're going to interview a um, a bloke um, with a bloke who's in the who's in a wheelchair and he needs uh, trains for access. And there's a campaign taking place, we'll talk about it next week, but campaign to say, well, if they're going to put level crossings on the removals along the upfield line, along in the Brunswick section, and therefore they're going to close the train for months, uh, then they must have they must have accessible tram stops on Sydney Road because all these people like this bloke we're going to be talking to next week uh, won't be able to, won't have access. They'll be forced to use at the best um, the taxi system, in which they still pay half fare, and half fare in a taxi is still pretty expensive. Particularly, most of these people, I presume, are on benefits of some sort. Um, so, uh, we're noticing though that the state government's saying, well, it's it's you know, there's real problems in terms of budgeting, and therefore they they're talking about, and the first things they're talking about not going ahead with our public transport initiatives like the the airport link that's been in the air for, no pun intended, for uh, decades. And last time there was a report when Peter Batchelor was Transport Minister, there was a report that recommended it, but in the end he said it wouldn't go ahead for whatever reason. But at the same time, all the roads they look into go ahead madly and freeways and tollways given over to a private company. And now they're saying, well, one of the one of the victims of all this might be the airport link, and the federal government, which is also looking to cut funding dramatically, is also um, is also saying, well, we might cut funding for the supporting the airport link in Melbourne. So yet again, it becomes a victim. While there's no talk about, of course, cutting back on the alternatives which are putting people on car. And, of course, the level crossing removals, all they do is give cars more, you know, make cars move faster so they don't help public transport. Now, the upfield line's still going to be a 20-minute service, so after months have been closed, there'll be no benefits for those who use the train. That's right. I think, I think also, like, what a shame about that airport link because the whole thing was based on having, what was it, Skybus prices, not mm. not local kind of metro prices. And with the expansion they want to do on the airport with a third runway, surely there would be more people wanting it. So what a shame. What a shame. And also, of course, we've <laughs> argued for ages that an airport train service, should you should be able to use a metro and go at a metro fare. Exactly. Um, but they're saying it'll be much more expensive, more akin to the, as you say, the Skybus fare. Uh, having said that, also of course we've mentioned. I'm going to keep saying it over and over for the next well, <laughs> won't be around for the next thirty years. But <laughs> for the next thirty years, we've we've calculated, and it's a correct figure. The cost of the submarines is thirty eight million dollars a day. Now we're spending thirty eight million dollars a day on 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 items that kill people or contribute to killing people. But we're saying we can't afford to increase the miserable rate in which people live on the dole um, or single mums try to survive on the dole uh, or we can't build 
important infrastructure that would make life better for a lot of people. But we can, we, we can spend $38 million a day. Now, if we put that $38 million a day accumulating over a period, I think we could do all those things I'm talking about. As Dave Sweeney mm. said last time we had him on the program, write your wish list, Kevin. Mm. You, could, you, could, <laughs> you can so, solve it all before. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So... There you are. That's uh, but uh, so they're all now into the into the business of saying, well, we can't afford anything at all anymore. And uh, that thirty-eight million a day uh, yeah. figure as well that we keep repeating and probably won't stop repeating uh, was double fact-checked, by the way, wasn't it? It was double fact-checked. In fact, as I said, a friend of mine rang and said he couldn't believe the figure, but then he rang back and said he'd done the same calculation. <laughs> and he, but it, no, it wasn't thirty-eight million. It was thirty-seven point eight. He said so. <laughs> interviewed someone on uh, Brecky uh, last week, I think, um, the writer of a piece in the Overland that was uh, commenting on the Red Alert series that The Age had run, uh, the sort of China scare campaign, and uh, he was doing the numbers as well and saying that that uh, submarine deal could lift a million people out of poverty in Australia. Yeah, so, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's shocking, isn't it? I mean, when you think, I mean, we're, we're carrying on about it, but really, I mean, if they did put that money into those things, well, we'd have a, a far, far better society. Um, uh, people who listen to the Stick Together program on this show, on this station, would know that in recent weeks there's been interviews with workers and the union involved in a strike in, I think it's Shepparton, isn't it, where, and Vizzy and Anthony Pratt, the, one of the richest families, the richest family, probably his families go in Australia. I think he's second only to Gina in terms of wealth. Um, but they've got a bit of money anyway, <coughs> and he can probably afford to pay the workers a bit, but anyway, they're not, they're refusing to. But again, while the state government's saying it has to cut back on all sorts of things, it announced, and the idea's a good one, the container deposit scheme, but the $515 million they're spending on it is being shared between three companies, including Busy with Anthony Pratt. So we're able to give Anthony Pratt millions and millions and millions of dollars while he's refusing to pay workers who are out on the grass. Um, but we can't afford uh, some of the essentials for ordinary people in this society. And in fact, uh, a, a rather... I think to use the term uh, rather bitchy piece because they write them in this rear window column in the in the financial oh, review. Oh, Kevin, not at nine a.m. Yes, Come I'm on. afraid so. <laughs> um, the uh, I'm afraid any time of the day. Um, to the nasty stuff. Anyone concerned with the perception of their independence would would at the very least have demanded at Pratt's offer to ho- or have de- sorry de- demurred at Pratt's offer to host a fundraiser also attended by then Environment Minister Lee D'Ambrosio while. Was the front runner on its um, on its bid for a large new um, state contract, or politely declined attendance at a bar? He's talking about Andrews here, by the way. Or politely declined attendance at a barbecue at the home of Fox, whose family also donates heavily to Labor. Weeks before his government con- contemplated funding a new tr- um, a new track next to Avalon Airport. Neither uh, outing was necessary and neither helped build a constituency for even more government spending that the state can now will afford. When the Pratt fundraiser became front-page news during the November election campaign, 
the age explicitly tying it to Vizzy's bidding for container recycling scheme. It quoted a government spokesperson saying the tender was being conducted, quote, under strict probity guidelines and assessed against predetermined criteria without external influence. Andrews, of course, is no stranger to Pratt's Rahina Estate, having some months earlier joined 200 guests there at the bar mitzvah of Pratt's son Leon, etc., etc. So mm-hmm. there's money around for, for certain things, isn't there, really? And like submarines and, and the very rich. Well, of course, it's not government's job to fund schools, housing, health, mm. right? No, education. No. <laughs> Transport, <laughs> housing, as we'll get on to later. On, on such matters again with government, um, you'll be pleased to know that while the Reserve Bank is, we're told how responsible it is and how it uh, it keeps putting up interest rates and creating um, many people's you know, problems for many, many people, particularly those with mortgages, for all of us, because it, it's also part of the whole equation of prices going up and and wages not going up. But what a surprise. What a surprise. The Reserve Bank has apologised for underpaying some current and former staff members over seven years. But instead of doing it themselves, and they, you know, it's the old wing where you spend more and more money, um, they've actually consulted PricewaterhouseCooper, one of the big four consulting companies in the world, um, to look into it for them and try and sort it out. But, uh, yeah, what do you know? They've, uh, they, um, it uh, was first identified uh, by the finance sector union, which shows the value of being in a union, of course. They picked up well, seven years, but nonetheless they, it was the union that found out, otherwise they would have just kept not paying people or underpaying them. And it affects former employees who receive the um, cash equivalent of their consideration, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the union secretary, um, Julia Agrisano, said it beggars belief the Reserve Bank was unable to competently, uh, that's a bit infinitive, isn't that terrible, to competently navigate its own own, uh, enterprise agreement given the crucial role it plays as the steward of the national economy. The Reserve Bank has an obligation to ensure legal compliance with its workplace agreements and any attempt to water down the agreement at the upcoming enterprise agreement negotiations to get around these obligations will be actively resisted by the union, etc., etc. But isn't that terrible? The Reserve Bank itself is uh, ripping off workers. Beggar's belief. Beggar's belief. (laughs) Hopefully the apology was written on some nice soft paper. I hope so. Probably with a Pricewaterhouse letterhead. Yeah. Make Um, it useful. Yeah. And, of course, um, while I think, again, an interview this morning on the Brecky Show, uh, Claudia, the... uh, talked about uh, the need for unions to become stronger and, uh, and enterprise agreements, etc., etc. But, of course, it's going in the other way because the government is trying to... Well, the government is... They mentioned, in fact, the government is bringing in new laws that make it a bit better for unions, but not a lot, a lot. We're still, they still have a hand tied behind their back. But you've got a mob called Mabel, who are an online carer platform. They, they tend to put people in touch with each other. But their their head has come out and said they should be totally exempt from any new laws 
that regard gig workers as actual employees and have to be given rights and conditions that other workers have. So he's come out immediately and said, you know, it's not fair to us that we have to actually pay our workers and treat them like workers when they're really, as we know, individual contractors. Uh-huh. And the, and the um, Business Council of Australia came out last week and it, uh, it, it accused the Albanese government of pursuing ideological restrictions on casual employees and labour hire that would entrench outdated work practices and undermine its supposed support of enterprise bargaining. And I think, I think the entrenched outdated work practices include things like giving them decent pay and conditions and, um, and treating them like workers. But uh, So there's a, the usual backlash from the usual suspects who, as again, the interview this morning made clear, have benefited incredibly from the econ- economy in recent years, but uh, workers have got none of it, or very little of it. Yes, and they're so archaic. It's all about the new innovation. It's all about it's all about casualising the workforce because it's better for everybody, right? Well, yes, of course. New it is. systems. Right. Yes, well, I think um, that point was made again. I'm, I'm quoting that interview pretty much, aren't I? But he, again, he made the point <laughs> that very point that uh, that casualisation of the workforce uh, is one of the reasons workers are trapped and. Uh, Mm. And uh, and can't uh, and and can't do much uh, because they're well one they're not regarded. If you're a if you're a gig worker and you uh, as he said if you're a gig worker and you're not even sure the boss can cut you if you want to go for, ask for a, a wage rise that might mean the boss will actually cut your time next week you won't even get work so uh, that's it yeah which is all very good isn't it now today is uh, housing day. And I thought there's a few things I thought I'd mention before we get into interviews. With interviews, you want to hear the people we're interviewing and not rave on ourselves. So we'll rave on, <laughs> rave on ourselves now instead. Um, I'm going to pour another bit of tea. Does anyone else want to top up? I'm all right, no? thanks. All okay. okay. With Delicious the milk. with what milk. What was it like with the milk? Okay. <laughs> right. With the milk. I've never thought of that. Um, now, there was a bloke called Tone Wheeler, T-O-N-E Wheeler, um, he um, is the director of Environment Studios, specialising in social and sustainable architecture. But he he's come up with an article in the Age last week, which many people I'm sure would have seen. But it's it's really um, it's really interesting. He says, when it comes to social and affordable housing, it seems the Albanese government, with its Housing Australia Future Fund, is content to disregard the lessons of the past. Traditionally, public housing has been provided by the states and built with federal taxes. When poverty increases after wars and crises, most countries increase public housing, but not Australia. These failures reveal the issues with federal Labor's housing policy. We premiate home ownership. We rarely build enough public housing, and when we do, we are all too prone to sew it off. The first publicly owned rental, he goes on, it started out with the Sydney Harbour Trust with waterside workers in after the 1900 bubonic But He says the Great Depression brought forth public housing through housing commissions and trusts in the eastern states and Labor Prime Minister Ben Chifley proffered the Commonwealth Housing Commission to promote house sales to low-income workers. After World War II, the Commonwealth State Housing Agreement made loans to the states for public housing construction, a system which continues to this day. In just 10 years, state housing authorities built almost 100,000 dwellings for public rental, one in every seven dwellings built in Australia, and public housing as a share of dwelling completions reached 16%. 
1946, the Victorian Housing Commission um, pre, uh, repurposed the Commonwealth Tank Factory to produce prefabricated concrete panels. And I, I've mentioned several times that in Victoria in the 50s and 60s, we had our own, the Commission had its own construction authority back then, yeah. building what, believe it or not, public housing, for God's sake. Um, the Menzies government redirected 30% of CSHA funds to building societies and state banks to finance home ownership and the state sold off public housing. Public housing was 7% of all dwellings at the end of the 80s. Now, don't forget, it had been up to 16%. Three Labor deputy leaders tried to reverse the trend, but they failed because, as, as it says... But each, each successive Conservative government has cut CSHA funding and initiatives. Public housing fell to 5% of all dwellings in the late 90s. After the millennium, privatisation of public housing took off. Existing projects were sold for redevelopment at higher densities and developers were compelled to set aside about 15% of new dwellings for social and affordable housing. Public housing was run by community housing providers, not governments. Social housing members often fail to increase or even match the public housing lost, which is just now 4% of dwellings, so it's gone from 16 down to 4%. Rising property values, falling home ownership and greater wage disparities seize 10% of all households seeking social and affordable housing, more yeah. than three times what's available. Federal Labor has responded with the Housing Australia Future Fund, which dividends will pay where dividends will pay for thirty thousand new social dwellings over five years. The need is more like fifty thousand each year for twenty years. Albanese grew up with a single mum in public housing, but in denying funding for those social programs for current battlers, it seems social housing is not a priority for the Federal Labor government. More than 120 years of governments advocating for middle-class home ownership rather than public housing has caught up with us. A bold vision supported by funding needed uh, or we'll just have yet another public housing policy failure. So there you are. Um, a couple of dubious claims in that article. I did happen to, I did happen to see it. Um, they, of course, have conflated the ideas of public housing and social and quote-unquote affordable housing. Um there were also a couple of things that really stuck out to me because uh, I, I grew up in public housing towers for a time as well. Um, parts of it just kind of needlessly also talked about how antisocial behaviour in public housing was rife and things like that. Well, in this article. Oh, maybe no, on the maybe on the no, web that, version. That was almost the entire article I wrote. I, maybe on the uh, web version. Well, or maybe all, it was, was altered or, or updated. Uh, really, yeah. From April yeah. 10th. I'm not sure. But there was a statement like that in there and I just kind of thought, wow, that's a bit yeah, irresponsible 10, to right, say April that 10. and not and not discuss also perhaps the uh, what's it called? The 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 context by which it became that way, which was very much due to probably I would say the Kevin Kennett government in the nineties as well. Mm. Um, getting rid of live in mental health facilities. Yeah, it was April tenth, so you probably got the same article, but uh, obviously uh I read the best bits, or the best bits made it in there. Because if he said all those other things, it's pretty ordinary. Maybe I should read more articles then, and we can compare what the web versions yeah, say right. compared to the print ones. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that is interesting. But anyway, well, that part's good. I mean, the, I think the important part is, and he was calling it public housing, and it was, of course, until it became social housing. As he says, it's not run by government anymore. And uh, but I think the important figure is that at its height, it reached that sixteen um, percent figure, and now it's down to. 
before mm. uh, when the, the need is so great. Yeah, we're going to go to Shane very shortly and uh, stop this. But one other interesting <laughs> fact in terms, it's, it's to do with housing in a sense, I think this. Uh, well, it is, obviously, because it goes into housing. But um, a mob called Fletcher Building, who make pipes for um, houses, and they've been leaking. Um, and they've um, set aside $15 million to cover the cost from hundreds of complaints. Uh, the Pro-Fit Hot and Cold Plumbing Pipe um, and it's uh, the business, well, it's the Fletcher Buildings business that runs this is called Iplex, and it's at the centre of 1,200 complaints in Western Australia, um, May between 2017 and, and last year. More than 15,000 of the pipes were installed in that time. It's already under investigation by WA's building regulator over the project, but it points out it also builds, um, it's, it's, it's listed on the New Zealand and Australian Stock Exchanges and they also build and have pipes around the rest of the country. But what I found interesting at the end of it all was Fletcher said the ProFit product was also sold in other states of Australia from mid-2017 to mid-2022. Reports to Iplex were that the leak rate in those states was not materially unusual for a product of this type. And I thought, well, if you're building a new home and you're putting a new pipe in, I would have thought the the ideal level of leakage would be zero. Uh, the, no, but the complaints are 12,000, Kevin. Yeah, that's What's, right. But it says here, not material shows unusual. What you know, right? the, the leak rate was not material unusual. I thought, well, there should be no leak rate at all if you're selling a product that's brand new and going into a house. And I don't know. They justify it by saying, well, that not many of them leak. That's the fear. <laughs> not many. Yeah. What's going on here? That's right. <laughs> It's uh, anyway. That's uh, it, that struck me. The other one, just before we go on to, um, and we'll bring Shane immediately after this. By the way, um, <laughs> the the Porter Davis collapse. The fact that the people, and I feel for them. I mean, people who put their deposit down, and those particularly who find they're not insured now, and they they're going to be in trouble. Um, but going going to Parliament, the inf- the inference seemed to be that somehow if a private company like that collapses, then the state government has some sort of responsibility to bail them out or to bail out the company or bail out the people affected. And really, it's, it's again, it's the market forces thing, surely. But uh, uh, I don't, you know, as I say, I feel for those people and I hope that they can get help, but they should get helped from inside the free enterprise system, not from the public purse, I would have thought. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the lines are very blurry about what government does and what government's supposed mm, to do, well, we, isn't it? That's right. That's when we talk about that, haven't we? Casualized contracts, we know They're not blurry when it comes to the doll, though, and those things. We know exactly what they do. They don't, they don't do. Um, look, let's take a break. We'll get Shane on the line and get some sense to this program. <laughs> <laughs> City Limits on 3CR. You know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following in the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, we've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want them to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. 
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Iran to the Americas, the Pacific to Palestine, and here in so-called Australia, people are standing up for freedom and liberation. This May Day at Melbourne State Library, join the voice of Revolution Iran Melbourne, the Black People's Union, renegade activists, unionists, and people from all over the world as we stand together in understanding that we are all in this together. A lineup of speakers and music from around the world demanding justice and celebrating our common struggles and our common humanity will be announced on the event page soon. You can find the event by searching May Day for Freedom and Liberation on Facebook. May Day for Freedom and Liberation, 5.30pm, Monday 1st of May at State Library, Victoria. A 3CR community radio supporter. Okay, Shane McGrath on the line, the Housing for the Age Action Group. And Shane, before we kick off, I, I thought one you'd find interesting and it might be something you can recommend to your clients, um, people who come in seeking help from the Housing with Age Action Group. Because I know a lot of people, you know, older people, are trying to, as they say, downsize. And there's a bloke, um, there's, there's a bloke who's got a few quid who's downsized, um, a bloke called um, Luke McKee, I think his name is, and he has um, downsized to a $12.5 million off-the-plan penthouse in Turak Village with, um, with 400 square residence centrepiece. The, um, it's, got, it's got an office, it's got residential, it's got a pool, it's got all sorts of beautiful things. So a wine cellar, um, uh, even a carer's suite, an extensive study. So uh, this is the sort of thing you should be recommending to people who come into the House of Age Action Group, I would have thought, Shane. Yeah, I mean, I'm just feeling very sorry for Luke right now. It sounds like he's really doing it tough. Like oh, it's, it's rough, it's rough. But the, the important thing about that article you'll be pleased to know is that the, the real estate industry says it's that top end of the market that's really growing and people are really into it. So the very rich are doing okay at the moment. It's just the, it's just, just, just the poor who are having a bit of trouble with putting a roof over their head. Speaking of which, how's it with the A's? What's going on there? Um... Well, I mean, all the usual things. One thing that came up for us recently that um, Fiona York, uh, our executive officer, wanted me to talk about was uh, a, a tiny house park. So people sometimes contact us about tiny houses, which is a kind of like upmarket rebranding of caravan parks. You know what I mean? They're fairly small dwellings that are, that are sold and then uh, often the land is rented or something like that. Um, people often want to move into them for, for reasons that include, you know, good, solid ecological motivations, thinking, you know, about carbon footprints and things like that. Um, so we've just come across a park uh, where the residents have all paid in the range of, you know, 300 to 350 grand uh, for, for their dwellings and moved in there. Uh, you know, for all of the people that I've spoken to, that was their life savings. Um, and the park's in liquidation now. So... The owners presumably uh, took the money, took the, the rent for the site and, you know, failed to pay off any of their debts and that's left some older people who who have no other, you know, no other savings, no other assets to fall back on in this really awful position where nobody really knows what's going to happen to their, their home. 
So in paying that money, 350 or whatever you said, 1000 does that mean they actually own it or were they, was that yeah. a sort of, sort of rental thing or what? Yeah, so they own these dwellings that can't be moved and uh, sit on land that belongs to a business that is... That is now broke. Yeah. So they own these things. Uh, maybe, I don't know really what you can do with a, a home that you own on land that someone else owns and is gone bankrupt. So, well, not bankrupt, but you know what I mean. So that's got to be sorted out, yeah. And they are totally immovable. They're stuck there, are they? I mean, That's my understanding. Um, maybe some of them can be moved, but there are some that are two-storey tiny houses, um, and those ones, my understanding is they can't be removed from the site. Well, that's a real dilemma, isn't it? Yeah. And, well, yeah, we'll, we'll keep in touch with that one then because it's obviously ongoing, I presume. Yeah, I mean, there's you know keep... you can still see the website. I'm not going to name the place, but you can still see their website. You know, the the sort of fawning articles in the Herald Sun about what a great investment opportunity this was. You know, what a great environment, the luxury, the incredible returns on your investment, all of this stuff. And uh, you know, it's just garbage. People really need to be careful if they're considering something like a tiny house. Obviously, any kind of housing that you might be buying into, you want to mm. make sure that you've, you've really thought it through. But I think tiny house is often just a bit of rhetoric that can cover over some pretty uh, questionable arrangements. Yeah. Of course, the ongoing struggle could make a few lawyers, which which wouldn't hurt, I suppose, for the lawyers. Um, <laughs> but that's about that. Um, also, I noticed um, one of you know, your favourite group of people, really, landlords, they, they're still complaining that the new regulations that have come in uh, are crippling them, and many are saying, well, I think we've mentioned it before, but they have to get out because they simply can't afford to, to meet all the requirements like making the houses livable and that sort of thing. Um, you know, it's, it's funny because the ATO is reporting that landlords don't seem to know how much money they have coming in. Did you hear about the data matching scheme for landlords? Because they're underreporting no, their income no. by some, I think it was $9 billion landlords have underreported their income by. Uh, Come on. So, <laughs> The, the tax office has decided to do some data matching. Uh, you know, maybe we're going to finally see a kind of robo-debt for landlords or something like that. Um, <laughs> although, of course, the, the difference is that when you have data matching for the poor, it's an extremely punitive approach. Um, you know, outrageously so, quite unlawful, as, as, as well established now. But when you have data matching for the rich, for your investment properties, there's a, a focus on voluntary compliance. Uh, and I, I presume, though, that it didn't include them understating their uh, their need for negative gearing and other tax concessions. Well, I know, isn't that? I mean, that's the whole thing, right? Like they they're presumably underreporting the income in part to 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 overeg those tax concessions, their negative gearing and whatnot. <laughs> that's right, because no, that's, that's, that's right, because the negative, gearing. The negative gearing is relative to what you spend and all that sort of stuff, isn't it? And losses and things. Yeah, that's right. It's yeah. about your losses. Yeah. So it's not enough that the rest of us are paying, you know, their tax breaks on the investment properties that we rent from them. They're also lying to the tax office about they're bringing in. Yeah, that's unbelievable. And I know it's not. Not, not under the under your um, terms of reference specifically, but aged care places are complaining about the new regulations in which they have to, for instance, have a have a trained nurse, a regular um, a nurse registered nurse, twenty four hours a day on site, and many are saying they can't meet that requirement, and because of they're claiming staff shortages, I presume many of them are also cost. Uh, but it seems to me that this is an industry where most of the the money comes from the, from the government 
uh, and at the same time, um, there's industry screaming about not making enough money out of the government, well, out of the government, presumably. But if it gets to that stage, why shouldn't the government, which spends so much on this area and which is committed, in fact, to meeting the wage increases for workers, uh, just take it over, run it? Uh, I mean, it's, it, it should be so obvious. No, nobody's making a legitimate profit out of providing decent aged care services. That, that's, you know, so well established at this point. We saw, you know, in the uh, in the worst stages of the pandemic, it was consistent that um, public aged care, the risks of COVID were much lower than they were in private aged care. Um, the... You know, it's a slam dunk, like, obvious that the government... It's the sort of social service that the government needs to be providing. It's not an effective for-profit industry. And you get things like that we're saying we can't afford to keep a nurse on. You can't have a nurse on in aged care. Like, what are these people, including, as you say, the government and the taxpayers, what are we paying you for? Yep. So, uh... Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it seems, as I say, it just seems to me this is a classic case where the government, if it's going to be spending so much money on it, it may as well run it itself, uh, particularly when the proprietors are screaming out and many are saying they're going to have to close down because they can't meet the new requirements. Well, if the requirements are what was recommended by, by a, a commission, an inquiry into aged care, which said these are, these are the minimum required for people to have a, a decent life in aged care. Yeah, I mean, it's also the, just the minimum that common sense would tell you is required. Like, the idea that you can offer operate for-profit aged care and not provide 24-hour nursing services. Like, the, the stories you hear about the consequences for individual older people when there's not a nurse on call uh, are quite horrifying. Mm. And for these people to be worried that they're not going to make enough profit, it's, it's uh, unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, OK. Anything else from Housing with Age before we wander off? Uh, I think that's all from, from us for, for this week. That's it. That's it. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Well, well, I mean, there, there, well, I can't. Uh, I'll, I'll talk some more if you want. The yeah. government's reopened the Retirement Villages Act uh, review. Well, not sorry, not reopened the review. There was an exposure draft of the proposed amendments to the Retirement Villages Act that came out, uh, I think, four weeks, three weeks before the, uh, before the caretaker period, before the state election last year. So it was a very short consultation period, and HAG and I think pretty much every other stakeholder complained that that wasn't enough time to, to digest the, the material and respond meaningfully. So they've reopened that. So anyone who's living in a retirement village or has opinions about it, you can check out the proposed changes, um, which, if I could summarise, are unbelievably inadequate um, and would love to... The, the government wants your feedback about them. So uh, if you have a view about that sort of thing, uh, you can go to the Engage Media website, sorry, the Engage Victoria website, uh, and uh, express your views. Good, okay. And that was well summarised, by the way, Shane, I thought. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be our submission as well, just two words. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that should sum it up pretty well. All right, Shane, look, thanks for your time, and we'll talk to you again next month. Thanks, Kevin. Okay, yeah. thanks a lot. Shane McGrath there from the Housing with Age Action Group. And uh, after this break, we're going to be talking to um, Catherine Murdoch and Jack Burton, who are both, well, they're regulars on this program, people who know them, the public housing tenants and activists. And, of course, if you want to get in touch with HAG, you can head to their website, oldertenants.org.au, or call anytime toll-free for advice, info and housing support. 
Uh, if you're over 50 on 1300 765 178, stay tuned to City Limits. Would you like to reduce your risk of dementia? The Better Brains trial aims to discover whether targeted lifestyle changes can prevent memory decline in Australian adults. Participants aged 40 to 70 with a family history of dementia are allocated to receive health coaching from an allied health professional or health education materials about dementia and its risk factors. The trial is run entirely online, so visit www.betterbrains.org.au to sign up now. Better Brains is a 3CR supporter. Councils around the country will put on disability day events and quite a few of them will not include people of colour, First Nations people and black people. So I think it's pretty cool that everyone you'll hear on air today will be a person of colour and the majority of them will be people with disabilities as well. I think when we were preparing for this show and for this day we wanted to talk about how we could explain the concept of power from the margins and why it is that we've chosen to focus on black people, indigenous people and people of colour. And I think in in one word, it's intersectionality. It's the fact that people experience forms of oppression, different forms of oppression at the same time. And most people don't realise that you can't have racial justice without disability justice and vice versa. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Tune in to Uprise Radio every first and third Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR. With Jackson and James, we're bringing you the in-depth analysis of what's happening in the world all in just 30 minutes. You can listen live to air or you can find us on demand. 3cr.org.au. Stay tuned. Radio and uh, online we have uh, Catherine Murdoch and Jack Burton. Um, I don't know if you heard the earlier in the program. I read out an article from the Age, which pointed out that uh, after the Second World War, about ten years after the war, we had sixteen percent of dwellings um, public housing, public housing, literally in that, that period, and now it's down to four percent. And of course, most of it is is social and. Uh, and run by um, private groups. Um, comment on that, either of you? I did read that article, and thanks, Karina, for picking up on the, st- the social stigma um, and other social issues that claim to be connected with public housing. Um, but, you know, yeah, essentially saying that Albanese, who comes from public housing, isn't delivering. We've got an incompetent housing minister in place. And, you know, the push has been for home ownership with nothing matching the public housing that's being sold off um, for the sake of profit nationally. 
Yep. And the yep. front page, go on, Jack, you want to say something? Oh, I'm just saying we're down to 3.8% now of the um, you know, housing stock is um, public housing. And uh, I think the, like the world's best is it's about 30% in a lot of countries in Europe. And it's done quite well. And also avoiding the um, suburban sprawl that we've seen. Because if you think about it, 30% of the housing is public. And you can manage, you can manage how it's done. And a country like a or city like Vienna in Austria, um, they have a five-storey limit on the you know, the, the height of the housing you build, but they create um, very cohesive neighbourhoods that way. So, you know, people living in five-storey housing neighbourhoods or amenities are there, facilities, transport, and it's a lot more self-contained. So it actually sounds like it's nirvana to have places that actually um, focus on public housing versus what we're up to with our, um, you know, with defocusing on it and suburban sprawl. Um, but it's it just, just a bit of a side for the time. Um, a lot of that is, is, is because there's more profit in the suburban sprawl and all that, and the profit that's going to the um, building organisations and banks. We're actually uh, also a world leader in the amount of profit that banks make out of housing. But they're actually against anything cohesive in terms of neighbourhoods and public housing. So we're right up against it. Um, ever since the 1990s, the, the government is playing with their mates. Maybe they're all meeting at the Raheen as well. Uh, could well be <laughs> <laughs> heading down there or yeah. heading down to uh, Lindsay Fox's joint. Um, <clears throat> the, um, the front page of this morning's Age has a story, State weighs new powers to jam in a million more homes, which sounds encouraging. You know, a million more would be lovely if they built a million public housing homes. But in, when you read the story, local councils could be cut from decision-making on major development projects under a bold plan being considered by the Andrews government to help squeeze an extra one million homes into Melbourne suburbs by 2050 and further down it says the push follows growing alarm that Melbourne is on the cusp of a major housing crunch that could jeopardise Victoria's economic recovery. So again, they're seeing it purely in economic terms for the private uh, housing industry, as I see it. Oh, I'd say the messaging for that was written by the banking industry anyway, because that's that's what they want. They want um, deregulation and profits. I think, by the way, a lot of that housing they're talking about building is this. Um, the suburban rail route. I think there's 13 stations on it, and they want to have like massive uh, uh, private housing towers um, uh, around those stations. And they can't do that unless they take the power off the, the, the councils in terms of their regulation. Well, I think the so, government's the government's already done that, hasn't it? It's, I know Box Hill Council was complaining that the government's taken control of what yeah. the land around what will become the Box Hill station on that line. Yeah, and, and so no regulations about building heights and all that sort of stuff, which the builders love. You know, the, the more profit you can get out of every every square metre of, of your, your land, you know, it's fantastic. So apparently, like, you know, the banks here are making, like, 40 years ago, they would have been making 60% of their profit from lending to businesses and only 40% of profit out of housing. It's now skewed to something like 90%. We're like the world leader by far in, 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 in the nature of the banking industry 
you have a look at the profits they've been making, you know, five billion, ten billion dollars. You know, it's only a handful of banks, so we've got it all very centralised. They've they've, uh, they've merged it and acquired every other bank. So we've got a banking industry that's rife, running rife, making massive amount of profit. As a statistic says, that's all coming from lending to housing. And you know, you beaut, housing prices shoot up. I can lend you more for more profit. You know. So everything about that is geared to uh, against public housing. It's got to be private development and all that. And I went, I've been to a couple of Greens meetings lately, and um, they, they're actually tying directly the supply of public housing against the property prices and rentals. So if you, if you supply property, public housing, you actually decrease property prices and rentals. And guess what? That means you decrease the bank's profits. So, you know, we're up against a massive lobby industry funded with heaps of money and, you know, against a bunch of volunteers. And that hopefully, you know, through shows like this and some of the articles that educated journalists are now producing, we're going to actually start getting the message out. And it's certainly going to happen at, at federal level because the Greens are, are gearing to block Albanese's... Um, Highly inadequate housing bill to um, to show show people up. Shows like this, Jack. I, I don't want to disillusion you, but after more than twenty years of this this program, I think we uh, we've made a big impression on public housing. There's no question of that. Um, um, but uh, I think we've absolutely yeah. reached a new low, Kevin. Yeah, we probably have. You know, yeah. we are just reached a whole level of neglect and corruption and failure to, you know, deliver a basic service to people. And you talked earlier on in the show about, you know, the government's probably fighting to decline the increase in New Start and youth allowance and how that's going to flow into people not being able to access education, you know, the continuation of not being able to afford to live and increased homelessness, and still that myth and stigma about, you know, if people use the word social and community housing that people are being cared for, um, when we know that the only people who are being cared for are the developers. Mm, exactly. Yeah. And in fact, yesterday's Herald of all places, Herald Sun of all places, yesterday had a story, I don't know if you saw it or not, saying the Andrews government is selling off an average of two public housing properties every week despite waiting lists blowing out to almost 70,000. They actually used the term public housing then, didn't they? I yes, I, actually, I saw that and that's true. And, um, and one of the Greens meetings I went to, they actually had a look at the net effect of the big housing bill that's now been going on for two years. This is the $5 billion that's been spent on, 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 on community housing. And um, the net effect is that we've increased the amount of ha- housing, and I'll call it with social housing in terms of net effect, 74. That's all we've increased. We've spent half mm. of that $5 billion and we've only increased the net amount by 74. And that's, I, I imagine, is because we are we're selling off all these housing in the meantime. And indeed, um, Catherine mentioned neglect, which is why I went to this article, because in the article, a government spokeswoman said properties were sold for a variety of reasons, including because they were in poor condition 
did not meet environment and accessibility standards or were poorly located. As all government departments and entities do, Homes Victoria may choose to sell a home that is no longer fit for purpose, with every dollar from the proceeds reinvested by Homes Victoria to improve, renew and grow social housing. Wow, that's good. Um, but, you know, it, it uh, the fact that they, they say they're not fit for purpose or they're they're um, in poor condition, that comes down to maintenance, doesn't it? If they maintain them, they wouldn't be in poor condition. Absolutely. Yeah, it comes down to maintenance. Sorry to interrupt, Jack. And with, you know, the downsizing of staffing, etc., the fact that, you know, most of these bodies are breaching their service agreement because residents can't get in contact with them, because urgent repairs, especially given the number of people um, ageing and living with disabilities, they're not being looked after. So the most viable option is to, um, you know, upgrade and maintain the existing properties, but it doesn't happen. Um, Exactly. They're demolished and sold off. And then, you know, last show we talked about Barrack Beacon Estate. Um, Margaret Kelly's just received her final eviction letter. And then it's a non-disclosure. You know, the big build homes Victoria, those 89 dwellings, people have been evicted, but the plans haven't even been disclosed for what's going to happen on that site. I'm glad you mentioned... justify that? Sorry to interrupt. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Barrack Beacon, actually, because in a recent interview in The Age, while we're on, you know, Mm. talking about maintenance and things, I remember a lot of the old walk-ups in, like, Flemington and stuff, the reason for their demolition was similar, even though independently stated to be able to stand for another 100 years. Um, Homes Victoria, in this article in The Age, said the new development would, quote-unquote, better integrate into the surrounding suburb than the existing low-rise buildings, citing that as uh, the major reason for the redevelopment. Mm-hmm. So I think it's I think it's also important to be realistic about about the motives behind it as well. It's not it's not that these uh, public housing buildings are always in a state of disrepair, is it? No, exactly, and that's a classic case in point when you look at the age of those buildings, and um, you know that's just a myth about better integrating. It's just an absolute miss to sell off the property, which is prime land, and to get more income from it. Yeah, well, Well, they're they're creating multi-million dollar apartments to integrate with the other multi-million dollar apartments, I guess, aren't they? that's right. In that article, I noticed someone someone made the point that they bet the public housing segment element of it, when it's when it is complete, won't be facing the beach, um, <laughs> which, which I thought interesting. Um, but also in that article, they made the point that, it, that the land was underutilised at the moment. That surely that is that one way of saying public housing tenants shouldn't have open public land somewhere near them. I think it's a good way of saying that public housing tenants shouldn't have beach access or walking distance to amenities or any green spaces around them, yes. Yeah, or playground for the kids in and out between the houses, Mm. that sort of stuff. Yeah, there is the open space there now, and um, it's, it's it's, you know, the vampires are looking at it and saying, you little beauty, more profit here, empty land. So... I just want to digress because we're, we're running out of time. I, you know, 
we, we're talking all about this and the politics of it. But let's get down to the misery in the streets. Just by quite by accident, I had a, a coffee of a friend who lives out in Croydon, um, and she she just casually mentioned to me. I walk my dog every morning. She knows I'm an activist in this area. And she says, "You wouldn't believe the amount of cars I see with people waking up in them." Did you hear that? Mm. She sees people waking up in cars. Yeah. And that one makes me want to cry. I mean, I don't know if I could look those people in the eye and the misery they must be feeling, and they're voiceless. You know, they're, they're voiceless, and, and, and they're, they're up against, you know, guys swaggering around in Armani suits and, uh, you know, going to their banking conferences, making more profit. And as I said earlier, downsizing to $20 million penthouses. Yeah. It just made me feel so sad, you know, that people are waking. But I've heard stories like that before, but, you know, she actually hears someone who just said, oh, yeah, I see it every day. Yeah. Uh, well, exactly, us- Jack, and it's oh. become the norm. And, yeah. you know, Kevin, linking into that conversation you had earlier, you know, then looking at Homes Victoria and at the moment how then they need funding, a $250 million bailout package, and they're on the verge of collapse. And that was the Andrews government's solution. And that was their big build, and we're going to provide housing for everyone. So that's just absolutely going nowhere. And the other side of it, of course, is, and back to what Jack just said, that in the private rental market, it's now reached a stage where people simply can't afford it. Um, So it it exacerbates the need for... uh, for public housing, surely, um, when when people can't afford to rent in the private market, and it, that's why they're in cars, etc., all those things. Yeah, there's a direct link between the supply of public housing and and their rental going out of control and, and and house prices. So the Greens have got a number of graphs that are now presented in the, in the meetings I've gone to, and and they actually do hold the balance of power in in mm. federal and state, along along with a few other members of the upper houses. But they are actually going to take the government to account and they say expect it to get nasty and there will be political football and they'll get blamed for being mean-spirited and not, not passing inadequate bills. But they said they're going to stand up against it. You know, enough is enough. And I think that does make me encouraging. If you want to leave on a, on a, on a, on a higher note, at least someone now in power is doing something about it. Yeah, well, in that article in the some we mentioned about the selling off of public housing, um, a very good quote from the Greens. They say, while thousands of Victorians struggle to cope with record high rents and are plunged into homelessness, Labor is allowing developers to make big profits at the cost of building more public housing and keeping public land in public hands. Mm, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Catherine, comment at this point? Um, only about two minutes think, to go, by the way. One minute to yeah, go, in fact. Two minutes to go. Only, you know, recapping on what Jack said before, other countries are doing it. You know, in Vienna, three out of five people live in public housing. It provides ongoing housing that um, tenancy can be passed on to children. It's socially acceptable. People embrace it. And the amenities that are incorporated with that public housing. So I think it's fantastic that the Greens are holding Labor to account and we've all got to do everything that we can um, to just get government to be accountable for providing this human right. 
Um, I know Defending Extend Public Housing are on the steps of Parliament tomorrow, Thursday the 20th at 12. And the Geelong Housing Action Group have got a meeting at 6 via Zoom, Thursday the 20th, for people that want to get involved. Right, what's the details of that then again, that, that last one? Um, the Geelong Housing Action Group, they've got a Zoom meeting Thursday the 20th at 6 o'clock. Right, so people can get in contact with them, obviously, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yep. And yeah. there's a Facebook page as well, and there's another community forum that's um, getting up in Geelong um, in terms of addressing the housing issue and looking after community there. Okay, uh, time's up, unfortunately. It just ticked over to 10 o'clock on my old studio clock. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but anyway, Joe must be panicking in the next studio. So, uh, look, thanks for your time this morning, Jack Burden, Catherine, Mur- Catherine Murdoch. Um, thanks, thanks, guys. A lot. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.